0: You know, something that I really enjoy looking at, something I'm really interested in, deathbed quotes. Don't pretend like you're not. All right? Famous last words, right? You get someone who's like at the finish line of their life couple steps away, and what are they thinking about in those moments? What are they what do they have to say? Ben Franklin. A uh, lifelong friends with great revivalist George Whitfield from the Great Awakening is reported to have said at the end of his life, "My friend George Whitfield always tried to convert me. Soon I shall see if he was right." Kind of a sad one, actually. Uh, John Adams. John Adams. He and Thomas Jefferson had a bitter rivalry for a while during their career, but they ended up being really, really good friends. They both lay dying in their, they were both laying in their deathbeds, dying, uh, Adams in Massachusetts, Jefferson at Monticello in Virginia, and they had this thing going like who was going to outlive the other, right? It's fun to go back and, and read their letters. I, I know you're dying to go read their correspondence, but they, uh, it was pretty cool. And um, so John Adams' last words as he lay dying at his house. Thomas Jefferson still survives. I mean, come on. That's what he's thinking about with his very last breath. But actually, he died without knowing that Thomas Jefferson had actually died four hours earlier. So uh, anyways, and fittingly, and I'm, I'm going to say this to you, and you may it may be so interesting to you that you may want to pass the offering bags around again. He... They both died on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which is pretty awesome. July 4th, 1826. Now you know. All right. So uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you might know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. Young German pastor who defied Hitler and the Third Reich uh, up to and through the Second World War right before he was hanged at a camp in Flossburg he said this is the end but for me the beginning of life. Awesome. He if you don't know anything about Bonhoeffer then I highly and strongly encourage you to go look him up. He's a really really great dude. Also this guy. And I'm swear I'm not making this up. His last words were live long and prosper. He Uh, He only died a few years ago, so he tweeted this out to the public and to all of his fans, and those were his last words. So also, through the writings of Paul in the New Testament, we are able, through some of his letters, to get some of the last words that he ever wrote, some of the things that were on his mind near the end. He said to Timothy, the time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful and now the prize awaits me. The prize awaits me. So keep these words tucked away, okay, because we are going to circle back to them a little later. The hardest thing about thinking through the life of Paul and having to talk about it and having only about 30 minutes to do it is that what do you include and what do you exclude, right? There is so much data on Paul in the The New Testament. So what we're going to do this morning is uh, we're just going to get some background, okay, and then we are going to be introduced to this figure, Paul, the way that the Scriptures introduces him to us. So some background. Right before Jesus died, he told his followers to go and make disciples. And then right before Jesus ascended, he told his he told the disciples there to go to Jerusalem and wait there and pray and wait to receive the promise of the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know, the disciples didn't want Jesus to leave, of course, but Jesus said these astonishing words to them. He said, it's actually better for you. It's better for you that I leave because if I didn't leave, then I couldn't send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be in you and will guide you and will remind you of everything ...that I have said to you. So they went and waited for about seven weeks... ...and then during the celebration of Pentecost... ...the Holy Spirit came upon them... ...and it was awesome... ...and uh, this is something that God was ushering in... ...that was brand new. It was brand new. They were under Roman rule at this time... ...but Rome was not the greatest enemy... ...the most immediate existential threat... ...to these new believers was the Jewish religious leaders. That's who they really had to go out for, or look out for. Now, remember, between the crucifixion of Jesus and this moment we're talking about, where 120 believers are are praying and waiting for the promise of the Father to be fulfilled, this is only a few weeks, this is like a couple of months. Okay, so we're looking ahead to Christmas now, and we're saying like, yeah, boy, that's not far off. That's, That's the amount of time that we're talking about here. And what I'm getting at is that the same religious leaders, the same Pharisees, not just the same you know, institution, the same people, the same Pharisees and Sadducees and so forth that had put Jesus to death are the same ones who are now trying hard to stamp out any remaining influence of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit came upon these disciples and then men like Peter began preaching in the streets. And it seemed like every time Peter was preaching, thousands of people were coming to believe in the resurrected Christ and beginning to follow Jesus. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit on these apostles and on the followers of Jesus is really throwing a wrench in the works for these religious leaders it's really uh, hurting their plans, all of this preaching, all of these conversions it's a huge roadblock to what they want to do. so what did the religious leaders do in response? well they did what leaders have done all throughout church history to try to stamp out a Christian witness. they encouraged widespread persecution and uh, of these Christ followers but What's awesome about this is the church grew like crazy in spite of it. The more they were persecuted, the more they grew. And this is a, just a counterintuitive principle that has been true throughout the, the entire history of the church, even now in places like China, where there is a big, big crackdowns going on with uh, the underground church in China. And it's growing like crazy. This is such an awesome thing. In a way persecutions help the church to grow. So, one man who was full of the Holy Spirit and very highly esteemed amongst early believers and Christ followers was a man named Stephen. Stephen was arrested by the religious leaders because he was preaching freedom from the law. Now, remember, at this time, the religious leaders, they thought and taught that in order to be right with God, you had to strictly adhere to the law on every point, and they had thousands of rules and regulations that governed every aspect of life, and you had to keep every one of those laws if you wanted to be right with God. And Stephen comes along, and uh, he's preaching freedom from the law, and so Stephen is arrested, and he is dragged before the high priest and the high council, and the speech that Stephen delivers there to the High Council is absolutely dazzling. And I hope that you will carve out a moment sometime this coming week to open your Bible to Acts chapter 7 and read that speech. It's, it's awesome. But Stephen is basically telling the High Council that they're wrong. They're wrong. You didn't talk to the High Jewish Council and the High Priest this way back in that day. Jesus had done this. And... Look what happened to him, right? So, so Stephen comes along and he says, the law was only temporary and that Jesus fulfilled the law and that now I don't have to meet all of these demands that you're putting on me because he met them for me. And when I believe in him I can, and follow him, I can live a life of freedom from the law. Stephen said in his own words, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. they even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered right So Stephen is not interested in you know winning friends and influencing people in this Speech that he's giving to the Jewish leaders. So how did the Jewish leaders respond?
1: <clears throat> the
0: Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. And they shook their fists at him in rage. And then just get this picture in your mind. Because it's hilarious how juvenile it is. They put their hands over their ears and began shouting. Right? They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city. And began to stone him. They stoned him. Now... Why am I telling you all of this in a message about Paul? It's because of the next half of verse 58, which says, Stephen's accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. So, It's a really interesting way that Luke words this. Laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. I get the taking off the jacket, because if I want to, you know, throw rocks at someone until they're dead, then I don't want to be encumbered by my coat. But what does it mean that he laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul? It almost sounds like it could mean that Saul's this guy's trying to work his way up, you know, to rock thrower in the group, and he hasn't really made it yet, so he has to sit there and watch everybody's stuff while they get to do the real work right but that's not what it means in fact commentators tell us that Saul was actually the ringleader of Stephen's assassination squad Saul was right there watching more than watching overseeing in fact as Stephen was being stoned to death and verse uh, 59 says and we're back to some final words here famous last words As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Those words sound familiar? The the last recorded words of Stephen are very, very similar to the last recorded words of Jesus as he died on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so Acts 8 begins with these words. Saul agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over all the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women in order to throw them into prison. So Paul is basically a terrorist, right? He's basically, I said Paul, I meant Saul, is basically a terrorist. He is an intense, passionate, zealous man whose life mission is to terrorize and to kill, if possible, as many Christ followers as he can get his hands on. We might be tempted to think that Saul wasn't really that bad, but listen to how Acts chapter 9 begins. Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager, and that word eager in Greek means relentless in his mission to kill the Lord's followers. So we went to the high priest He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So what's going on here is the religious leaders in Damascus are supposed to put a list of names together for Saul so that when he gets there, he can take this list and he knows where to go and who to look for and he can begin his little manhunt and find these uh, Christ followers and bring them back into Damascus. He can walk in, nice big grand entrance with a bunch of people in chains. ...behind him, right? But, but, God had another idea. God has another idea for Saul. And listen, I don't know your deep background, the way you've been hurt, or the way that maybe you've hurt others. I don't know, you know, where you've been and what you've done. But you can take great comfort in seeing what happens next here to Saul. Now remember, Saul's on his way to Damascus to go to the religious leaders where he's going to get a hit list, right? Here's what happens. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And so when Saul opens his eyes, he is blind, so he's led to a certain house in Damascus where he waits and prays. Meanwhile, God is appearing in in a vision to a man named Ananias one of his faithful followers who's already in Damascus and he's telling Ananias you need to go see this guy Saul at this particular house and when you're there I want you to lay your hands on him and pray for him and he will and his sight will be restored now how would you like to be Ananias in this situation right that could be a whole nother tough jobs message but you know he he's maybe like "Uh, I'm sorry Lord Saul, you say? We all know who Saul is. He's well known to us. He terrorizes us. He's killing my friends. And you want me to go see him? And God said, basically, I have plans for Saul. And so Ananias faithfully obeys The other apostles are justifiably skeptical at first, but soon they see that this radical conversion of Saul, this guy who they all knew as a terrorist, this guy who is the reason that many of their friends are in prison, this guy who oversaw the stoning of Stephen, somebody who was so well-respected in the community of new believers, they became convinced that Saul's conversion was authentic and that the spirit of god was on him mightily i'm going to take a little parenthesis right here okay i want to talk about what we mean by this word conversion it almost sounds like it could be a cult word okay it sounds like this this religious word or a word that like people who go to church tell each other when they're speaking in christianese to each other right so what do we mean by conversion conversion is a fundamental reorientation of life It is when our priority list gets completely blown up. It is a thorough transformation of one's life mission and purpose. This is exactly what is happening to Saul in that moment. He experiences a total change in the direction of his life. It's like a U-turn, right? So that's what we mean when we use the word conversion in this way. Conversion isn't only something that you do to your van. So, we know also that his uh, conversion is authentic because not long after this, the religious leaders start looking for Saul to kill him as well, along with these Christ followers. So, Saul eventually gets a new name, Paul. So Saul becomes Paul and is mightily used by God to usher in the church age and I just love when God does this. I just love this. He he does it in a way that I never would have even dreamed of him doing it. It's just so awesome when he takes a terrorist and and turns that around completely and uses him for his own purposes. You know, my wife Marion, her heart comes alive by being able to breathe new life into something that is just a piece of junk, right? And I've often wondered if this is why she married me. (laughs) But so she sees something like a piece of furniture, right? Something that is destined for the junk pile. She sees it, but this is one of the things I, I just love about her. She sees it for what it could be, not only for what it is, right? And then she buys it. She redeems it. She renews it and repurposes it and turns it into something beautiful that brings her joy and brings joy to others. Something that was destined for the junk heap. Listen, that is exactly what the gospel does. Paul's story is the reason that we sing Amazing Grace. And the truth is that Paul's story is all of our story, those of us who follow Christ. You see, nobody looked at Saul and saw Paul except God, except God. One might think when reading through Acts chapter 7, oh yeah, it's definitely Stephen. Stephen's the one that God's going to choose to usher in this whole new thing. But no, no, he chooses to entrust his mission to Paul. Now, Paul has got to be the greatest before and after story of all time. And so Paul is given a mission, and this mission is really hard. It's not easy. It's a tough job. In fact, it's so tough that it makes it into the tough jobs series at Crosswinds nearly 2,000 years later. So Just imagine for a second that you're Paul here as best we can. Let's imagine that uh, we're Paul. And some of us really can do this because we have experienced a conversion that was kind of similar to his. Maybe not with the light shining from the sky and everything, but but a quick U-turn when we encounter Jesus. Some people have experienced a radical conversion and they've had to break off old friendships and relationships that were not all compatible with this new direction in which they're now living. Sometimes uh, new Christians end up having to go back to their old friends and ask forgiveness for some things. You know, this is uh, really, really difficult, changing in life like this so quickly. Saul changed direction in a moment, 180 degrees. 180 degrees in a moment. That's really hard. It's like... He changed uniforms in the middle of a game, and then came back out on the field and starting started to run plays against his former teammates. Paul's mission can be summed up in two verses beautifully, and i one thing that I love about this is that this mission is God saying this before Saul had even become paul, right so that's what this is so awesome so The Lord said, Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You know, I love a principle that Andy Stanley did in a series once. He articulated an undeniable reality that is just so good. In fact... When I heard it for the first time years ago, it, almost every day, this has crossed my mind at some point. He said simply, direction determines destination. We are trying to pound this into the heads and hearts of our sons at my house, but direction determines destination. It's so simple, right? It's like a man reaps what he sows. It's like, well, duh. But how many shipwrecked lives might have turned out differently if, princip- if this principle, direction, determination, determines the des- uh, destination, was, maybe a few more D's in there, if that had, been, had that had taken root and had been applied earlier on in our lives, how might that have turned out differently? So my question for us today is this. How did Paul reach the destination of being able to say in his last moments physically alive, I fought the good fight, I have finished my race, I have remained faithful, and now the prize awaits me? How was he able to get there? What direction did he live in that enabled him to arrive at this destination? And that's what I want to examine with our remaining time today. So three things, three things. First, Paul knew who he was and he knew who he was in Christ. His identity had been changed that day on the road to Damascus. He was Saul who was on a mission to kill as many Christians as possible. And then he encountered Jesus and now he is Paul on a mission to make as many disciples as possible. But more than receiving a new name, he received a new identity. He wanted his life to put the life of Jesus on display before a watching world. This is how Paul viewed himself. He said famously in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. ...and who gave himself for me. And this would be a theme throughout Paul's life... ...that he would often come back to. Different words, different phrasing... ...but bottom line basically is this... ...not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. So he knew who he was in Christ. Second, Paul had a clear mission... ...and he stuck to it unwaveringly. He had a clear mission... And he did not waver from that mission. He was to take God's message to Gentiles and to kings and Jews. Basically everybody, wherever he went, he wanted to be building God's kingdom and to help convert people to be Jesus followers. He took three missionary journeys and he experienced all kinds of hardship and suffering for the sake of Jesus. Everybody else in this series has used a map, so I felt some peer pressure. So I just threw one in here for you. Um, you can see Paul uh, did three missionary journeys and uh, went to Rome. In fact, in the book of Romans, he's saying, I want so bad to come to you, but I can't right now. But eventually he gets there, and that's where uh, uh, most scholars believe Paul was probably beheaded and and martyred when he finally made it to Rome. But just listen to this adversity through Paul's, hear it through Paul's own words. This is kind of a lengthy passage, but hang with me. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes because in that time it was unlawful to give more than 40. So what they would do is give 39 and then they'd bring them out just a, a minute later and then they'd give them 39 more, right? So, so they would, could stay within their law. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys, and I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities and in the deserts and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And he just kind of says in passing, yeah, I've been in prison multiple times and for years at a time sometimes. And while he was in prison, it's remarkable. The he, he starts witnessing to everyone in the prison. And so people are being converted like crazy in the prison. That's kind of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, thing too. Awesome, awesome stuff. And one time after one of those shipwrecks, you know, Paul makes it to an island and builds a fire and he's warming up and he's probably damn saying to himself, man, this is a tough job, right? And then he gets bit by a viper, all right? So, so he's endured all of these things. How is he able to endure all of these things? All of this adversity, all of this challenge in his life. Remember, God had said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. How was he able to endure all of this? He says in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I can do all this through Christ, through him who gives me strength. One time Paul was in prison. He thought he might die. And he couldn't decide which one was better, to live or to die. Seriously. And he's like, if I die, then I get to go be with Jesus. And that'd be sweet. But if I live, then I get to stay here and continue doing God's work among you and producing fruit that will increase to your account. So I can't figure out which one I really want. And then he says these words. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. To die is gain. These are the words of a man who knows who he is, And who knows what his mission is and sticks to it unwaveringly. Third, Paul lived with the end in mind. He lived with the finish line in view throughout his whole race. He kept his eye on the prize. He knows what he wants his destination to be, and so he lives in that direction. He often likens life to a race where the runner keeps his goal of reaching the finish line in view with every step. Now, Scholars tell us that Paul probably is the one who wrote Hebrews. We're not really sure, but let's assume he did. Paul said this, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, by keeping the end in mind, by keeping our focus on the finish line. You know, I'm really intrigued by this concept, Paul's idea of life as a race. And so this past week, I sat down with John Munis, who is a K-5 teacher here at Crosswinds. He's one of our new small group leaders. He's also an ultra-distance runner, and I can hardly say those words without throwing up in my mouth a little bit, but he's also an ultra-distance runner, and I wanted to get some unique insights from him into life as a race, and so we sat down and chatted. Let's watch. John, thanks for joining us Sure. uh, to talk about uh, this, feel like you can give us a unique perspective on... um, Life as a race, as Paul defines it.
1: Ultra distance running. What, what are we talking about? Five, six miles? Yeah, an ultra is anything beyond a marathon. So a marathon is 26.2 miles. Anything beyond that is an ultra marathon. Who would win, me or Ah, uh, Whoever has an iron stomach. It's all about keeping those, those calories down. Mm. If you can't keep your food down and run... not going to win. Your longest run that you've ever done? 101 miles. Couldn't keep going? No, that was the finish line. (laughs) Wow,
0: 101 miles. Where was that?
1: It was in the Zumbro River Bottoms, southeast Minnesota.
0: Wow, and so next month you have a
1: run coming up. Tell me about that. Yep, that's going to be running with backpacking gear, so it'll be about 40 miles a day for two days. So roughly 80 miles, depending on how it goes. 80 miles
0: of running in two days.
1: Yeah, depending how it goes. For fun. For fun, (laughs) yeah.
0: How would you describe ultra distance running to somebody who might be thinking about getting into it? Not that I am, Mm -hmm. but someone who might be thinking about getting into it.
1: The thing I really like about ultras is that when you go out and do them, most ultra runners run ultras just in training. So not every ultra is a race. Mm -hmm. When you do it, it reveals the truth. It's a furnace. Like as Christians, we talk about the furnace that we go through that reveals the truth. It reveals the truth. When you're out there on a trail by yourself running an ultra, if your shoes aren't working, if your nutrition strategy is not working, if you're not in shape, if you went too fast to start with and now you're burning out, it's all revealed abundantly clearly. Mm. And it keeps you honest you you know you can't live in fantasy land and be an ultra runner at the same time it reveals all the little aspects That's of what's good. going on
0: describe the highs and the lows of running we're talking i can't even fathom an 80, 80
1: mile run so the highs and lows of running are really unpredictable so you don't it's not logical you might be in a a point in your run where you would expect to be just so exhausted mentally and physically and miserable and yet you can be laughing and having a great time and there'll there'll be other points where everything's working physically but you're just in a mental slump it's not really predictable but the thing is you know before you get into ultra running there will be highs and there will be lows and there'll be extreme very low lows and wonderful highs Hmm. but since you know that that's going to happen it gives you peace because you, you just go into it realizing it's going to happen. I'll have these lows. I'll have them repeatedly. But if I endure and push through it, I'll get some food, get something to drink, and I'll be doing better an hour later.
0: You're looking ahead to an 80-mile run next month mm-hmm. in two days. Suppose you did nothing between now and then, and you just mm-hmm. drive there, you get out of the car, and you just start running. How does that go for you?
1: That would be needlessly miserable. So an 80-mile run split up up over two days. I'm planning to do it with a backpack with backpacking kit, sleeping outside at night. It'll be tough, but if I don't prepare, I'm just not being strategic. It would be needlessly painful. But seriously, who would win an ultra-marathon, me or Doug Weinkoff? Probably
0: Doug. All right thought john nailed it until the end there but um i probably should have asked him some questions about his mental health um but yeah i really really appreciated uh john's unique insights into life as a race i love what he said about ultra distance running being a furnace that's so good being a furnace that reveals all the little cracks and and who i really am how true is that We can say, I think Paul is saying, that life is an ultra-distance run. It's an ultra-distance run. Life is a furnace in which God is always refining us. He is constantly refining us. Paul probably never would have learned how to be content in all of those situations unless he was put in situations where he had to learn those lessons, right? So again, for Paul, it's all about not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. So Paul was able to say at the end, I have finished my race and I've remained faithful. He knew who he was in Christ. He had a clear mission. He stuck to it unwaveringly and he lived with the end in mind. So Paul for himself, he knew the who and the what and the why, right? And the where didn't matter because he had learned to be content and he was going to build God's kingdom and not his own. He was going to build God's kingdom in any situation in which he found himself. So let me ask you a few questions here as we bring this to a close. You take these with you today and think about them. It'd be awesome if you to just talk together about them on your way home or something. What direction are you living in today? Seriously. Think direction determines destination. The direction that your life is heading right now, what is the destination of that direction? Are you letting your desired destination, to be able to say those things right along with Paul, are you letting your desired destination govern the way that you order your life so that you can live in that direction or are you just kind of like living whatever direction whatever I feel like today this week and just hoping that everything's going to turn out fine in the end because it usually does whose race are you running are you running your own race or that that you have just kind of defined for yourself or are you running the race that God has marked out for you to run whose kingdom Are you building God's or your own? God's or your own? You know, I used to have some fear about my own physical death. And if I'm perfectly honest with you, I still do sometimes. But as I searched my own heart on that, what I discovered is this that what I really fear more than my own physical death, what I really fear is dying with regrets. That's what I fear. I fear that deathbed moment knowing that I had not run my race well. Knowing that I did not lay aside every encumbrance but in fact I lived a pretty self-centered life. Pretty distracted life. Living for myself in the here and now and not living for anything eternal. That's is what I really fear. Perhaps you can relate. You know, the band sang this morning, put beautiful words that it put it in. The kingdom of God is here, and we're alive for something eternal. So let's fight the good fight and give it all for the Savior's sacrifice. Let's allow Paul's words to become the destination that determines the direction in which we live that when we come to the end of our days, the banner written over our lives will say, fought the good fight, finished the race well, remained faithful until the end. That we would keep that moment in mind when we stand before Jesus, our Savior and our Judge, that we would hear those beautiful words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, um, this is pretty heavy. um, But just like John talked about the furnace, Lord, I think most of us in this room can look back on seasons of our lives that would be beautifully described as a furnace. God, I pray that you would continue to refine us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you take broken down people and turn us into something beautiful. Thank you for what you did with Paul. That total 180, that complete U-turn in his life and the difference he's made for so many, including us. God, I pray that uh, we would purpose to run our individual races with endurance, being faithful to you, keeping the end in mind, Lord, that we might hear from you one day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. We pray this
1: in Jesus' name. Amen.